0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning in the United States. Good afternoon in England. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Mayor Sadiq Khan, the first Muslim mayor elected uh, first muslim mayor of london elected in 2016 just won re-election to a second term in may and there's a lot on his plate from covid to climate to crime and we're going to talk about it all right now mayor khan welcome to washington post live
1: it's an absolute pleasure to uh, join you and i'm going to try jonathan my best not to look over your shoulder at your bookshelf uh, I-, I deliberately well, I learned early on, Jonathan, during this uh, awful pandemic, when you do interviews, try to have notebooks behind you because people like, look at the books I'm reading uh, rather than the interviews. But it's lovely to join you uh, and the Washington Post uh, for the next half an hour or so.
0: Well, Mayor Khan, I should also, yes, people look at the books behind me, but they also pay attention to the flowers. I mean, oh. the, the folks have a lot of time on their hands. But let's talk about more more serious matters and let's start with the pandemic. Um, as mayor of a major financial center, London is a global city. How has COVID affected the residents of your city?
1: Well, uh, whenever I begin these conversations, I think about the lives lost. Uh, We're talking about a global pandemic that's led to the loss of lives and livelihoods. Uh, I've always thought since the beginning, since around March, 2020, when this uh, first um, became something that we realized was happening, But you've got to link the health of individuals with the health of our economy. And over the last 18 months in London alone, 20,000 Londoners have lost their lives. Uh, We've also discovered, uh, we discovered early on, this had a disproportionate impact on black, Asian, minority ethnic people, on poorer people, which both um, exposed and exacerbated the structural inequalities in our society. But at the same time it's been really hard for those businesses that rely upon footfall uh, for their success think of our theatres our bars our restaurants our transport system our coffee bars and so forth in the center of our city but the good news is uh, we're bouncing back the good news is uh, over the last few weeks and months we've had a massive campaign let's do london we've seen the return of people to the center of uh, our city including many uh, american friends returning to uh, london and we're making a, a, you know, a good recovery.
0: You know, as you were speaking, I, and it's nice to hear that London is, is bouncing back and people are returning, um, but I'm just wondering about the handling of the, the coronavirus pandemic, the disparate handling between you know, across the world in the EU, and I'm wondering the impact of the uneven policies and vaccinations. Uh, around the world in the EU. And also I'm wondering uh, the, the impact of that on your efforts in London, but also if you could talk about the impact of Brexit, if that has had any impact on the way you've been able to respond to the pandemic.
1: Which I think if you've heard the phrase, which is really important for us to actually listen to the phrase and understand it, none of us is safe until all of us are safe. What that means is until the entire planet, uh, those of us living in this wonderful planet have been vaccinated, actually none of us are safe, right? Or as many people as possible uh, receive the uh, vaccine. One of the things we discovered early on during this awful uh, uh, pandemic was actually you need to have good, strong leadership. You need to be able to pull the levers and know things are happening, but also you need to understand the lessons you can learn from those cities and those countries who for a variety of reasons, are experiencing the virus before you are. So I spent a lot of time uh, last year, in March, April, May in particular, but even up until uh, now, speaking regularly to leaders across the globe, that could include mayors, national leaders, those uh, in the private sector, those who uh, you know uh, work in the health organizations across the globe to learn best practice to copy what's working well and to avoid the mistakes being uh, made. One of the things that I think hasn't worked uh, well is uh, making sure that we explain to people the scientific evidence, what this virus is about, what it means, and the simple things you can do to ameliorate, to reduce the chances of you catching the virus, social distancing, uh, you know, making sure you wear a face mask when you're in close proximity uh, and so forth, but also the things we can do to reduce the chances of having the vaccine, having not just one dose, having a second dose as well, And now we're talking about the booster dose. And so it's really important we learn those lessons. In relation to Brexit, it was a huge challenge because we had two things happening at the same time. Us leaving the European Union, uh, but also at the same time, this awful pandemic beginning. And um, I'm afraid those two things have conflated some of the consequences to London as a city and to our country. The good news is, and it is good news, is even though we're outside the European Union, we've worked really closely with our colleagues across the European Union. So for example, there's been sharing of vaccines, there's been sharing of good practice, uh, there's been sharing of information. That's, I think, important because it saves, saves lives at the
0: end of the day. You know, Mayor Khan, I'm wondering in London uh, and in England in general, are you finding the level of resistance to vaccinations? in the same way we're seeing here in the United States, people who are because, actively resistant to the science.
1: There's three groups of people in that category, uh, Jonathan. One are the anti-vaxxers, uh, two of the uh, you know, conspiracy theories that COVID denies, and three is people genuinely, for good reasons, aren't quite sure about the virus, aren't quite sure about the vaccine and need to be educated, small e, non-patronizing to be explained how you catch the virus, but also actually, although this vaccine was produced incredibly quickly because the entire world's attention was focused on a a vaccine that is safe, there's been clinical trials and so forth. Uh, And what we have in, uh, in the West in particular is a suspicion by some of people in positions of power and influence because their lived experience is not to trust them. So you can understand why some communities don't trust pharmaceuticals why some communities don't trust government ministers. And so we've had a big job trying to bust myths, trying to use respected message carriers who these people trust to deliver messages, trying to expose people to the science. I've got to accept though, that a small number of anti-vaxxers, a small number of uh, conspiracy conspiracy theorists, probably never going to be persuaded. You almost got to write them off And work on those people who you can persuade, you can educate, you can bring to the table.
0: I want to go back to your phrase, um, uh, bouncing back. Uh, London is bouncing back. The the Financial Times reported that an estimated 700,000 Londoners left the city during the pandemic, creating massive labor shortages. By adopting the phrase bouncing back, am I to take from that that folks are starting to return or have returned?
1: Yeah, it's a really important point you raise and actually it's a potentially existential to global cities like London, New York, Paris, what happens when the centre's hollowed out because of a uh, pandemic. So there are a number of reasons why uh, we had, uh, as you said, according to the FT reports, lots of people leaving. Combination of Brexit, Londoners, and the Londoners, by the way, whose country of origin may have been France or Germany or Poland or Romania, return to country of origin uh, because often the jobs they did, were in those areas, hospitality, uh, culture, uh, where footfall meant, lack of footfall meant there wasn't any job to be done. And secondly, many Londoners who, because they weren't working in a bar or a restaurant or the normal stuff they did uh, in theatres, went back to mum and dad's home around the other parts of the country. And many of these Londoners, uh, Jonathan, are what I call boomerang Londoners. They returned when their jobs returned, they've returned when there's something to do in this great city. Because one of the reasons people choose to live in London isn't simply their work, it's because we've got the whole shebang. Uh, We've got great nightlife, we've got museums, we've got galleries, we've got great theatres. You've got your friends who you can see during lunchtime at work or, or after work
0: to go for a drink, and all that disappeared. And now that's coming back, people are coming back as well. I like that phrase, Bo- boomerang Londoners. I can imagine that there might be some uh, mayors here in the United States who might take that first word and use it for themselves. You know, one- There's another,
1: there's another, there's another phrase, Jonathan, which you'll, you'll appreciate. Uh speak as a parent of a children up. There are boomerang children. They return home as well.
0: <laughs> I like that. I'm writing, I'm writing all of these things down. And you're a, 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 a um, gold mine of great phrases you know one of the things one of the things that you are most known for is for being a vocal leader on climate change and sustainability I want to let the the viewers know particularly here in the united states that earlier today in london you were announced as the next global chair of c40 cities um, which is a network of nearly a hundred cities a hundred of the world's leading cities that have committed to tackling climate change you don't formally assume the role until the chairmanship. until I think it's December 1st. What are your plans once you do? And and, and if you could talk about the importance of, of C40. Well, thank, thank you for mentioning that. I mean, look, the, the key
1: thing we've got to get across is, uh, across the globe, is climate change isn't something that affects us in 10, 20, 30 years time, or only affects uh, those people in sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia. It's happening now, the consequences of climate change. You've seen it in the f- awful floods in uh, New York. Uh, you saw the loss of life uh, there, in the wildfires and so forth taking place across the globe from Greece uh, to Australia. We saw it in London, uh, flash flooding this uh, summer, which meant a lot of our uh, tube stations were closed down, many, many homes flooded. In Germany, you've seen the awful fires taking place there. So it's happening now. And one of the things uh, we also know, uh, you and I both are good examples of this, is most of the world's population uh, live in our cities. But the way COP26 works is it's national governments reaching agreement how they can reduce their greenhouse emissions. The reality is, though, only way we're going to be successful at fighting climate change and deal with the other twin challenge of air pollution is by cities, be given the powers and funding they need to bring about meaningful uh, change and i'm incredibly proud to be the next chair of uh, c40 taking over from my good friend uh, the mayor of los angeles eric garcetti we represent almost 100 uh, cities across the globe with a population uh, north of 700 million and we are responsible i'm proud to say for more than a quarter of global wealth so we're really important and the great news about C40 is, this is a global group of networks coming together. Uh, where we're saying we want to have bold policies to address the twin challenges of climate change to get to zero carbon as soon as possible in London. Our aim is net zero carbon by 2030, but also uh, air pollution. We want to get to zero pollution as soon as possible as well, because we don't talk much about air pollution. This is an invisible killer leading to premature deaths leading to children having stunted lungs forever and adults with a whole host of health issues from asthma to dementia to cancer to heart disease. And it's really important that we lobby our governments uh, to make sure COP26 uh, in just a couple of weeks time is a success.
0: And you you mentioned uh, Eric Garcetti, who is the uh, outgoing chairman of C40, uh, mayor of Los Angeles, uh, who is going to become or is nominated by President Biden to be the United States ambassador to India, you've mentioned COP26 uh, several times now it's gonna be happening in a couple of weeks just up the road a piece from you in in Scotland. Um, I'm gonna ask this question carefully because it deals with uh, American domestic politics but right now we're going through a situation where the president um, is trying to get a reconciliation bill, climate uh, is was supposed to be a big part of it. The president's trying to get it done before he heads over to COP26. As the mayor of London and as an international leader, how important is it to you but also to the, to the world that the American president and the American government comes to the table at COP26 with something tangible that he, uh, he can bring to the table showing that the United States is part of the global effort at climate change. I'm did gonna say this. About
1: yeah, yeah, to, to, to those watching this in America, uh, I'm not sure if you fully understand and appreciate how much many of us around the globe revere you, look up to you and look to you for leadership. Uh, and you know, many of you won't be surprised for me to say that actually for four years, you were missing an action. And only did you, because of your President at the time, walk away from the Paris Climate Change Agreement. But many of the things that that your government, your president, was saying and doing were the antithesis of being uh, change makers and solving the challenges posed by climate change and other issues uh, as well. The election of President Biden uh, has been warmly welcomed by many of us across the globe for a variety of reasons, a variety of reasons, not least of which, is his commitment to sign up again to the Paris Climate Change uh, Agreement. And, you know, him appointing uh, John Kerry, Secretary Kerry, to be the climate change envoy was the the boldest and uh, best example of leadership in action we've seen from I'm afraid, four years from uh, the country that I love, uh, the USA. And I I met John uh, recently and the leadership uh, your government is showing through a combination of President Biden, uh, John Kerry, You've got brilliant mayors in uh, America doing great jobs uh, at a local level, but you are the most important player when it comes to solving problems around the globe, whether it's terrorism, uh, whether it's issues around uh, provision of uh, you know uh, energy security there, or whether it's uh, climate change. And President Biden uh, coming to Glasgow says something. The fact that John Kerry is speaking on a daily basis to leaders across the globe, trying to persuade them to provide the 100 billion Dollars we need a year, but also to you know get get away from coal. Have policies uh, that leads to us addressing the climate emergency is really important, really important. I know we're disappointed uh, that President Xi and President Putin won't be there in person, but they will have people who will be there. And so you know we look to you as we often do uh, for leadership here. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing uh, President Biden in action in Glasgow in a couple of weeks' time.
0: And more specifically to your efforts in London, how do you plan to bring more green jobs to your city?
1: This is a really important issue. So one of the things we've got to get away from is giving the impression um, that climate change is all gloom and doom. We've got to give hope. I, this Sunday, spent some time with uh, our Prince, Prince William and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Duchess uh, uh, Kate as well. And what uh, was at first, uh, which was the Earthshot Awards. And Prince William talks about how just like in the early 1960s, your president, JFK, talks about, uh, you know, in in just just under 10 years, uh, having somebody on the moon, the moonshot, we need to have an earthshot. And uh, we're leading in London, we're the first earthshot city. And what I'm trying to explain to people is actually this solution to the climate emergency, to air pollution is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to create green jobs. Our economy uh, in London is uh, one where we have 50 billion pounds, green economy, uh, 317,000 people employed in the green economy, i want to double that over the next uh, 10 years. We can do that by more electric vehicles, electric charging points, uh, retrofitting our buildings, uh, cleaning up our air, uh, having electric buses, and so forth. This is a solution uh, to a problem. I call it a virtuous circle.
0: Uh, I was just writing down a question that I'm going to ask you uh, at the end. Um, you, <laughs> do you have, um, and you may have said this in your answer, sort of obliquely, but what are your your major green job projects that are in the works?
1: Yeah, so we we began in 2019, uh, the first ever uh, ultra low emission zone. what that basically is, Jonathan, is uh, one of the things I realized is the issue of air quality is an issue of social justice. It's the poorest Londoners, the poorest people across the globe uh, who are least likely to be responsible for uh, the toxic air climate change, in our case, uh, uh, you know, emissions from vehicles, who suffer the worst uh, consequences. So you know, it's those who don't own a car, those who are the poorest, those who are Black, Asian, minority ethnic Londoners who suffer the worst consequences of air quality. So I brought in a policy called the ultra low emissions zone and it basically used the principle that polluter pays. If you have a polluting vehicle and you wanna come into the center of our city, you have gotta pay 12 pounds 50 a day to do so. And we've seen over the course of two years before the pandemic began a 50% reduction in toxic air in the centre of our city, plus, by the way, carbon reduction as well. And this coming Monday, we're going to be expanding uh, the world's first ultra emission zone up to uh, uh, all of inner London. So it will cover 4 million Londoners. Uh, And from Monday, if you're going to drive into inner London, uh, which covers 4 million Londoners, and your vehicle, is a polluting vehicle, you've got to pay a big fee to do so. And the idea is to discourage people polluting, to encourage instead walking, cycling, using public transport, or driving a zero emission uh, vehicle. And I'm hoping this will set the template for other cities across the globe. But also it's creating jobs. It's creating jobs with those who make electric vehicles. It's creating jobs in public transport. It's creating jobs in those who make bikes, it's uh, leading to a better uh, environment in London as well. And, and one of the things we're gonna do with C40 is to you know, share best practice across the globe.
0: So we've covered climate change, we've covered uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, now let's talk about crime and violent crime um, in London. Like so many uh, uh, urban areas here in the United States, London has experienced an, uh, an uptick in violent crime since the pandemic began. How are you addressing it? Well, first, I speak
1: regularly to to, to mayors in in your country, uh, and also we speak to you know um, those who run the police service as well. One of the things I I, want to say, which is not to excuse criminality, but just to explain the causes of uh, criminality, is they're deep and complex: Uh, deprivation, poverty, alienation, uh, lack of opportunities, uh, and so forth. And so we've got to understand why crime occurs. we've got to support those communities to give them the opportunities so young people are given constructive things to do, diverted away from joining criminal gangs or getting involved in criminality, at the same time as suppressing violence by supporting the police, uh, making sure they've got the powers and resources they need as well as the right scrutiny uh, so they're the right checks and balances. The phrase used by uh, previous leaders of our country, uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown was tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. Uh, and the good news is uh, this sort of public health approach where we treat crime as a virus. How do you treat the virus? You stop it occurring in the first place. Uh, if it does occur, you stop it spreading. And then you make sure you do public health things to stop future viruses occurring. We're gonna treat crime in the same way using data to you know laser like focus on those parts of our city where there is crime, where there are communities, where there's more deprivation to support those communities. And the good news is, uh, over the last uh, few years, we are seeing a reduction in violent crime, uh, and during the pandemic, uh, we saw a further reduction in violent crime. Knife crime injury has gone down, knife crime injury for those below the age of 25 has gone down, burglary is down, uh, robberies are down, homicides are down, no complacency at all. Uh, we've got to make sure we redouble the support we give to communities and the support we give to uh, uh, the police, because the reality is, just like criminals evolve and find new ways to try and cause us harm. We've got to evolve and find new ways to keep our communities safe.
0: Uh, Mayor Khan, you know, talking about that, um, you know, there's a a headline out of London that took the world by storm, uh, just by how shocking it was. And that involved the London police officer, Wayne Cousins who kidnapped, raped and murdered uh, 33 year old Sarah Everard. And this was back in March. He's received a a a life sentence. Um, but he used, according to reports, um, used police ID and COVID laws to falsely arrest and handcuff um, Everard, um, and then, uh, as I mentioned before, um, killed her. Has that horrific crime eroded the public's trust in police? And if so, what are you doing to mend um, that divide? It has.
1: Uh, I mean, it shattered uh, the confidence many people have in the police service. Uh, Particularly if you're a woman or a girl. This was somebody who uh, wasn't just a serving police officer, but used his position uh, to uh, uh, abduct, rape, uh, murder, and then burn uh, Sarah's uh, body. And so uh, we need to make sure that we understand fully what happened. Were there any missed opportunities to stop him joining the police service, stop him being transferred in? But also, we've also discovered. He was part of a WhatsApp group with other police officers, sharing messages that were not just misogynistic, racist, homophobic uh, as well. Uh, and so there are separate inquiries into what went wrong. But separately, we need to make sure we earn back uh, the trust and confidence, uh, particularly of women and girls. Uh, and that takes a, an approach that isn't just the police's problem; all of our problem. We've got to be looking at our society. How is it acceptable that uh, girls and women change their behavior because of what men do? How is it acceptable that women often have a self-imposed curfew not going at night time because they're worried about their safety? How is it acceptable that boys use certain sort of language in schools that leads to girls changing their behavior? I think, for example, misogyny should be a hate crime. And we're lobbying the government to make sure the harassment of women in the public is a criminal offense. And it starts in the classroom. We make sure the police address some of the issues, all the issues raised by the Sarah Everard case, but also the criminal justice system uh, as well. What we shouldn't be talking about is women changing their behavior to keep themselves safe. We should be targeting the behavior of men and boys uh, to address our behavior in relation not, not just uh, horrific murders, but the situation that if you're a woman or a girl, your life experiences, your life chances, your personal safety is uh, less than it is if you're a boy or a man.
0: That is an incredible message. We've got less than a minute left, Mayor Khan, but I have to ask, um, as I mentioned in your intro, you're the first Muslim elected mayor of London. You were re-elected mayor. What does that say, your, your election and re-election? What does that say about London? Well,
1: I genuinely say this, not just as a proud born and raised Londoner, uh, but knowing that I'm speaking to uh, proud American friends who live in great cities from Washington to New York, from LA to Chicago, is London is the great city in the world. I can't think of any other city uh, that would have given my family the the opportunity uh, to fulfill our potential, uh, to go from uh, municipal housing, council housing in London, where I was born and raised, to be mayor of this uh, great city. This city didn't just vote for somebody who is an ethnic minority, uh, but one who is a religious minority, and that's the religion of Islam in the current context, where, uh, for a variety of reasons, a small number of people (coughs) give our religion a bad name, so I'm incredibly proud of the vote the I got in 2016 and 2021 uh, 20, uh, and incredibly proud of this great city.
0: Mayor Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, you're giving me a lot of reasons to, to make a trip back to London. Thank you so much for coming to Washington Post Live. Stay safe, take care. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.